0: Now, we come to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. And we have come now to the second division that we have in this epistle. We have here the motive and method of a true witness for Christ in the first six verses. We are looking in chapter 2 at the coming of Christ is a working hope. Now, this is the rapture of the church. The coming of Christ for his church is not a doctrine to argue about. It's a doctrine to live. And unfortunately, we have many today that believe Christ is coming after the tribulation. There are those who believe he's coming before. Some believe he's coming during it. And then there's some who believe he's not coming at all. And yet they say they trust Him as Savior. Well, for all groups, the important thing is, how does your interpretation affect your life? Does it do anything for you? And I don't care what view you hold. If it doesn't do something for you, you probably ought to change it and get one that will help you and something that will motivate you. And so you have here... Motive and method of a true witness for Christ. Now, let me read here. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Now, that word, in vain, means empty. It means without results. Paul said, when we came to you, it was not just some theoretical proposition we put together. you, we didn't come and declare you something that was new and novel and something that actually didn't really affect you at all. We just entertained you there for a few days and left. No, it wasn't in vain, wasn't empty. When Paul came to Thessalonica, it rocked a great many folk, and it brought many people to a saving knowledge of Christ, and it brought into existence a church so that He's talking about something here that's not a philosophy. It's not a theory, but something that worked in Thessalonica. And if you walk down the streets of that city today, it's changed a great deal since Paul's day, but it's still in existence. The gospel walked down the streets of that city one time, and it was something that got into the hearts and into the homes and into the lives of men and women. Now, will you notice as he moves on down here? Because he says, but even after that we had suffered before and shamefully entreated, as ye know it, Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. And actually, the word contention here is the word agony. That is, agony in the Greek, and we get our word from that. In other words, it was with a great deal of conflict, a great deal of inward agony when he came there. Now, will you notice, Paul says here that when he left Philippi, he'd been shamefully treated there. And you will recall that that's exactly what happened to him there. But when he came now, he came with a boldness, In other words, he did not slow down because of his experience before. Actually, he's saying this, I didn't play down the gospel. Having had a terrifying experience at Philippi, Paul didn't say, now I'm going to change my approach. I'm going to be more tactful. I'm going to be outspoken. Paul was not a secret believer. Paul spoke right out, just as he had done at Philippi. You see, it'd be so easy for him to rationalize. And he could say, well, now, i better read that book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. And I should probably be more tactful. I should use the, well, have the easy sale, the soft sale. And I probably better come at it like that. Not Paul. He declared the gospel and his experience before did not affect him. Now he's going to tell how he entered in among them and how he presented the word. This, to me, is tremendous. In fact, the matter is, it's amazing. Let me ask you this question. If you were asked to choose which was the greatest sermon of the Apostle Paul, what sermon would you choose? Now, I'm sure in this wonderful group of folk listening today that there'd be difference of opinion, and rightly so. That great sermon at Damascus after his conversion, that is a great one. They're on the island of Cyprus before Sergius Paulus when he began his missionary work, and then in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia on his first missionary journey. Very frankly, I consider that one of the greatest of his sermons. And then yonder in Athens on Mars Hill, and then there in Corinth. That was a great defense he made there. And then over in Ephesus in the school of Tyrannus. I guess all of these are great. Probably somebody had picked his message he gave in Jerusalem when he was arrested, or when he was brought before Felix, and Festus, and Agrippa. And that one before Agrippa is a masterpiece. Or maybe there at the beach at Ephesus is farewell then. Well, in every message, he always presented Christ, his death and his resurrection. Now, very frankly, if I was to pick the greatest sermon of Paul, I would actually pick none of these. I would pick his life in Thessalonica. Not in writing, but in walking. Not in exposition, but in experience. Not in his profession, but his practice. And he took his text, actually, from James, that faith without works is dead. And he made his points on the pavement of the streets of Thessalonica. He didn't do it with his tongue, but with the testimony of his life. It was the tongue in his shoes, not the tongue in his mouth. And every believer's a preacher. You're a preacher. Now, maybe you won't like that. There was a man that lived down the street from me when I first came to Pasadena. That was in 1940. And he was an alcoholic, lived with his mother. Mother, a lovely Christian woman. She wanted me to talk with him and I talked with him several times, but one day, it was right before the holidays, or at the beginning of them, actually, I saw him get off the old streetcar in that day and start down the street, and he was using both sides of the street to hold him up, because he was really wobbling, and he was three sheets under the wind. And so when he came by my study, I just opened the door and moved him in, sat him down, and I told him what I thought of him, how he'd abused his mother, how he was breaking her heart. What a low-down, dirty rascal that he really was. And he agreed with every one of them. And then I came to this point. I said, you know, every person is a preacher. (laughs) And I said, you are a preacher. You preach for your life. He stood up and he wanted to fight me. Boy, he doubled his fist. He says, don't you call me a preacher. You know, I could call him everything under the sun but a preacher. Well, maybe you don't like me calling you a preacher, but you're a preacher. As I told that man that day, every person preaches by his life some message. You're saying something to somebody by the life that you live, and you can't help it. Maybe a child in your home. And that's one of the reasons that we've got a lot of young kids out on the highways and byways and streets and alleys of this world today is They looked at Mama and Dad at home, and they didn't like what they saw, and they took to the highway. Oh, my friend, may I say to you, the greatest sermon you'll ever preach, and I'll ever preach, is by the life that we live. Now, Paul's going to tell you about the sermon he preached in Thessalonica. Will you listen to him here? He says, "...for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, Are in guile. Now, may I say that here we're going to see the Apostle Paul giving the relationship that he had with the Thessalonians. First of all, he's going to say he was like a mother to them, and in that he comforted them. We'll see that in verse 7. And he was like a father to the Thessalonians. He charged them, verse 11. And he was like a brother to the Thessalonians. In verse 14, he challenges them. Now, let's get on with it here. In this section we're looking at now, he was like a mother to them. There is this relationship in which he attempted to comfort them. Now, he says, "...for our exhortation was not of deceit." Now, actually... The word deceit means error. The content of the exhortation was not adulterated. Paul did not water down the gospel. Never did for anybody. He never changed it for different groups. Now, one of the things that disturbs me about actually some ministers is they give a good clear-cut gospel one place, but they show up in another place in a place where they ought to be clear, and they're not always clear about what they give. May I say that was not true of the Apostle Paul. You see, his exhortation was not of deceit, and he says here, not of uncleanness. Now, uncleanness here is sensuality. Actually, what he means here, it was not motivated by greed. His motives were right. He didn't come to Thessalonica for the offering he had get or for the notoriety he would get or that it would minister to him personally in some way. He didn't come there for that reason at all. His motives were pure. There was no uncleanness in that sense. Nor, he says, of guile. Now, he did not use wrong motives. In other words... Paul would not lower his standards to accommodate the prejudices and passions of the old nature. He didn't appeal to the old nature of the folk. Now, here is an area where many of us can learn a lesson. I know of a minister, and he's been a great preacher. One time I looked up to him a great deal in days gone by. I can't anymore because I happen to know that he went back to a church where he had been the pastor. And he knew there was certain criticism of the pastor that was then at the church. And he played upon that. He developed that. May I say to you, that man went down, in my estimation, so much so that from that day on, as long as I knew him, I never had any respect for him at all. I could not. May I say to you, Paul says, I didn't bring the gospel to you with guile at all. And by the way, here is something that we religious broadcasters need to pay attention to. We need to be very careful what we say today. Are we really? And I'll be honest with you. I ask myself this question. Am I saying this in order that I might make friends and influence people? Or really, am I trying to give out the Word of God? And friends, I want to say to you, I have made many mistakes. I have failed the Lord so many times. It's just uh, amazing that he hadn't thrown me overboard. If I were he, I'd been disgusted with Vernon McGee long ago. But... I never pull punches. That's one place I told the Lord and I entered the ministry that I would not do that. And I'd be honest with you, I expected that I'd get in real trouble because of it. And I'd be very frank with you, the Lord's been so good to me because he knew that I'd start running if there was an occasion for it. But I never have had an occasion to because the Lord has been so good. But I can look him right up into heaven right now and say to you, Lord, I made a lot of mistakes and I failed you, but I've given it out the best I know how. And if I could give it better than I'm giving it, I'd give it better. But I'm doing the best that I possibly can by your grace. I love this passage here. Paul could just tell these Thessalonians, he says, when I came to you, I want you to know that I had no ulterior motive. I didn't come for your offering. I didn't come in order to shear you sheep. I came to give you the gospel and then to build you up in the faith. That was my motive. And I want to tell you, when you got that kind of motive, you're really sailing on a marvelous sea. You may get in a storm, but he'll bring you through it. Verse 4, "...but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel..." "...even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts." Now, he says, "...but as we were allowed of God." That word allow means approved or tested. Paul is saying here that he's no novice. He was not a man-pleaser, that he never sought popularity. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. When Paul preached, he was not preaching to find out what man would think of him, but what did God think of him. And may I say to you, he used the blue litmus paper of God to put down in his life, and I want to tell you, it stood the test. He never used a low method. Now, verse 5, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, not a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Now he's speaking very frank. He says, I never came into your midst and I never flattered any of you. I didn't flatter some rich person in the congregation. I never played up to the rich. I never buttered up a person. I never used flattery. You see, flattery disarms us. We really never know what to say. I've never known when anybody flatters me. I know when they criticize, I know what to say, but flattery disarms you. Shakespeare has a statement somewhere by a character. I think it's in Henry the Fourth, and it goes something like this. I can't give it verbatim. He says, My enemies tell me that I'm an ass, and I try to correct that. He says, My friends flatter me, and they cause me to make an ass of myself. Friends probably more dangerous than enemies at times. Now, Paul never used that business of flattery. Now, I know a group of wealthy laymen across this country that if you butter them up, you own them. If you don't, they are not interested in your program or interested in your work. You've got to butter them up. May I say to you, God pity the church and a work that has to depend upon men who have to be buttered up and flattered and have their backs scratched all the time. And friends, that is one of the curses today of the Christian church. This matter of flattery. Now, Paul didn't use a cloak of covetousness. The sin of the ministry, I do not think, is money. I've never felt that that was a great sin or a great temptation for me or the men that I've known. But, you know, the cloak of covetousness is a cloak of many colors. There are men that covet honor and fame and position. You see, a great many men today are after other things other than money, and we need to search our hearts. My alma mater, where I graduated from college, has attempted to buy men by giving them doctor's degrees, and they've given them out by the score. That's one reason a doctor's degree ought to be earned. I wish the day would come there'd be no more honorary degrees. Very few people really deserve them. Now we come, and I move on down here to verse 6 here in chapter 2. He says, "...nor of man sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ." Now, Paul never sought position or honors. He never received very many honorary degrees. That was never... His motive at all. Verse 7 of chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, he says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now, that word nurse means nursing mother, a mother bird, if you please, as a nurse cherisheth her children. You see, this is his positive statement. I've been a nursing mother, a mother bird to you. And you remember the Lord Jesus said that to Jerusalem. How many times I've gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chickens? And that's what he wants to do for all of those of us that are his. He uses many figures of speech. One is that of a sheep. He's the shepherd. And he gave his life for the sheep. He protects the sheep today. And he is someday going to gather them all in a fold where they'll be saved. With him, then the other is this idea of a mother hen (laughs) and little chicks. Now I was raised in the country, and I remember that in the spring of the year, you'd put an old settin' hen on some eggs, and before long, she's got a bunch of little chickens, and you will see her going around the yard just clucking. And the way we did in our day, we just didn't have a special chicken yard. We lived in a great big place by a cotton gin, and These chickens, they roamed all over the place. And one of the greatest things was looking for eggs in an area of a quarter of a mile and a whole block as it would be today. Well, anyway, a rain would come up, a quick shower. And she'd just start clucking and start toward the hen house. And my how she's moving and getting these little chickens along. And sometimes she wouldn't quite make it. So she'd just get all of them in under, just cluck, cluck, cluck. And she'd just be out there, and the rain running off of her, but the little ones are under their safe. How many times the Lord Jesus said, if you just come getting under my wing? Wonderful picture. Now, Paul says, I'm that kind of a minister. And that's the kind of minister that many men are today that are not great preachers by any means. They're great expositors. And I've met them. And I would say to the child of God that need counseling, don't appeal to me by letter. We answer them and do the best we can. But very frankly, that's not the best way. In your area, I'm sure there is a godly preacher, a minister who believes the word of God and preaches it, and a man that is mature and experienced. Don't go to a young one. Now, I don't misunderstand me there, but I found out that in matters like this, it's better to go to a mature, experienced man and sit down and open your heart to him and let him help you, and he could help you. Because there are many ministers like Paul that could have a mother side of their ministry, and there are many ministers that emphasize the mother side. They're good at counseling. And we've come here in verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear, are beloved unto us. Now, this word dear is beloved. Paul had a genuine love for the believers, and Paul was willing, actually, to die for the Thessalonian believer. A Wonderful relationship. You see, he had to them. Paul the Apostle was a great man of God. Now, will you notice verse 9? We're still dealing with this mother's side. And we'll get down to the father's side in just a moment. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail. And it's the mother that travails, you know. And Paul says, our labor and travail for laboring night and day. Because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Now, he is laboring night and day. Now, that's a mother for you. What is a man's work is from son to son, but a woman's work or a mother's work is never done. A mother is not a paid nurse. And Paul is saying he wasn't a paid nurse who worked by the hour. He wasn't a babysitter. He did not belong to a union. And I've often wondered today with all this women's lib, why don't they organize the mothers and get a union for the mothers? I recommend that. And maybe the mothers could get a union where they'd work eight hours, then turn the children over to the father for eight hours, and then turn them over to the neighbors for the next eight hours. You might work out something like that. You want to know something? I don't think mothers would buy that. Because mothers work a little differently. I heard this story several years ago up in New England when they had all the cotton mills, or many of them up there. There were two girls that worked in a cotton mill. And one of them quit, and these two didn't see each other until several years later, two or three years later, they met on a street in a city that was nearby. And the girl that had quit why, the other one said to her, said, What are you doing now? You still working? And she said, No, I'm not working. I'm married. She <laughs> said, Married? I one, Are you working? She said, Yes, I'm still working at the mill. And so she said to her, You're married? Tell me about your husband. Oh, she says, I not only have a husband, but I have a little boy. And she's told about how wonderful it was that she'd met him and That at first, she'd fix his lunch and get up early of the morning, throw arms around him. And when he came home in the afternoon, she'd be there at the door to open it and throw arms around him again and fix his dinner. And then this little fella came along. And by the way, when you get home of an evening and a voice way back in the house somewhere says, Is that you? Then you know the honeymoon is over, friends. That's when it's over. Well, anyway... This young couple now, they had a a little baby, and she was telling about the three o'clock feeding, and the uh, other woman says, well, when you worked in the mill, I remember how you used to watch the clock. When that five o'clock whistle blew, you were out of there. She said, yes, but don't watch the clock now, because I'm working really longer hours. She said, I thought you weren't working. Oh, she says, it really didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work anymore. Why? Because... She's motivated now by love. And that's what Paul is saying here. I work night and day. I don't belong to a union. I'm not paid. I'm not a hired hand. A man told me one time, he was a member of the church. He asked me to go see somebody. He says, you're paid to do that. Well, you know what? I told him, you go see him. You are not paid. You probably do a better job than I do, because we are not to do the Lord's work on that kind of basis. That really put that fellow in an awkward position, and you know he had to make that call. He never said that to me again. I can assure you that. May I say to you, Paul was this kind of a nursemaid, and he was a nursemaid. a lot of pastors are nursemaids. now i come down to the father's side here at verse ten, and will you notice the father's side of the apostle's ministry? he says, ye're witnesses." Now he's talking about, to them about something they know. This is the way Paul walks. Ye are witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now let's look at that. Holily. That means there was a careful discharge of his duty to God. Now that's holy living. And justly, was a careful discharge of his duty to man. Paul had a duty to God. He had a duty to man. And he discharged both of those. Now, we're living in a day when I hear so much about dedicated Christians. I think I've said this before. I say it again, and I'm probably going to say it several more times. I'm a little weary today of so-called dedicated Christians. Every now and then, young man says to me, I'm a dedicated Christian. And where he works, the man he works for tells me he's the laziest young man he's ever seen. My friend, if you're going to live a holy life, you're going to live that life to God. You don't watch the clock. You watch God. And you don't work when the boss is around. You work all the time because God's always around. A holy life. And you're not dedicated. Oh, I know. You went down front in a service, and somebody prayed over you, and you shed a few tears, and now you say you're dedicated. I want to know what your boss thinks of you. I want to know what your teacher thinks of you. Are you lazy? Then you're not dedicated. You're lazy. And they're not the same thing. Paul says, we walked holily before you. We lived all the time in the presence of God, and justly. Then he says, unblameably. And that means no charge could be maintained against the apostle and his companions. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't charge him, because they did. And they didn't blame him. But the charge wouldn't stick. You know, you can have things said about you. The important thing is make sure they're not true. And that's all Paul is saying, is unblameably that no charge against him would stick because he maintained uh, life, he and his companions, and a holy life does count, therefore, you see. How you live hasn't anything to do with your salvation. Sure, it may have everything to do with the salvation of somebody around you because they probably are watching you. Now, will you notice verse 11 here? He says, as ye know how we exhorted, and comforted, and charge every one of you as a father doth his children. Now, that word comforted is not our word comfort. That was back in the mother's side. Here, it's the word persuade. Now, let's look at all of these. First of all, he said, we exhorted you. Now, that word is the word parakaleo, and it's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. That means, Paul says, he came to the side of them to help them, to entreat them, to convict them. And you remember the Lord Jesus says when the Holy Spirit is come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I've always felt that you never present the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit until you present it as something that the Holy Spirit can convict men of, and they can convict them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Those three elements are always in the gospel. Now, Paul says that's the way that he presented it, as a father, you see. Now, he persuaded them. Now, he did use an urgency. He urged man, I beseech you. He could beseech them. And that should be the way that we should present it today. Now, charged here actually has a note of severity, of discipline It is a virile word, a robust word, a firm word, a masculine word, if you please. Now, will you forgive me for saying this? And I don't want to be ugly, but I guess I am going to be just a little ugly here about this. There is a whole lot of sissy preaching today. And I mean sissy preaching. These nice little sermonettes given by preacherettes, the Christianettes. And that just turns you off, and there's no gospel net there you can be sure of. This little urgency. Somebody has defined the average church service in a liberal church is where a mild-mannered man gets up before a group of mild-mannered people, and he urges them to be more mild-mannered. Oh, that is sickening, friends, that type of thing. I, generally at Easter time, like to get the paper and see what the liberal preachers are going to preach on for resurrection. They really have a problem there. And my wife thinks I indulge my flesh at that time because I have to laugh at some of the subjects. Here, years ago in Southern California, a preacher, liberal preacher, he had it in the paper. His subject was, Easter is a time of flowers. Oh, my friends. Don't you imagine that was a virile, robust sermon? May I say to you, no wonder we've got so many sick saints today being given that kind of poison soup. Or as Dr. Stewart, a great Methodist evangelist in the South years ago said, he says, some sermons don't have enough gospel in them to make soup for a sick grasshopper. And that is true today. What a glorious thing the ministry of the Apostle Paul was here Now, he says, I've done this as a father to you, you see. Verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and his glory. May I say to you, you're to walk worthy. This is the thing Paul said to the Ephesians, you remember. As a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the high calling wherewith you're called. Now, the kingdom here refers to the millennial kingdom, and the glory refers to the eternal kingdom. In other words, get a perspective, friends, of God's great plan and purpose. In other words, live in the light of eternity. Now, let me move down here. Now, Paul goes on here in verse 13. He says, For this cause also thank we, God, without ceasing, because when ye receive the word of God, which ye heard of us, You received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, here is the other side of what we talked about the other day. Paul said first, the gospel came unto you not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the way it should go out. And I hear a great many people criticize preachers. May I say this to you? If the man is presenting the gospel, it should not only go out in power, it should be received as the Word of God. Now, friends, let me ask you very candidly this question. How do you receive the Word of God? Do you receive it as the Word of God? Or do you have the hair up on the back of your neck? That's the way a lot of people come to church. Wonder what the preacher's going to say about me today. You know, that type of attitude. And I've had on two occasions, only two in my ministry of 40 years, two men came up to me, and both of them had a hang-up. They were mental problems. But nevertheless, they said to me, did you have me in mind this morning when you said what you did? Well, I didn't even know they were there. They really gave an added sense to their importance, which was not justified. If they think I'd waste a sermon preaching to either one of those characters, they were wrong. But the important thing is... They didn't receive the word of God as it was the word of God. Now, it not only should go out as the word of God, it should be received as the word of God. And friends, if you'll receive it that way, that's the way that it works in you. Now, that's the reason that some Christians, they're as cold as a barracuda's tail. Man, they're cold saints. And they go to church and it means nothing to them. If it means nothing to you, you're wasting your time. How do you receive the word of God? Do you receive it as the word of God? If you do, oh, there's blessing there for you. That is, if it's given in the power of the Holy Spirit. Say, I hope we can get together on this. I hope I can give it in the power. I hope you can receive it that way. If you do, oh, friends, there's really something going to happen. You may be sure of that. Now, this second chapter is actually a very remarkable chapter, by the way, because you have here the coming of Christ is a working hope. That is, it gets right down where the rubber meets the road. And we have seen already in this chapter the motive and method of a true witness for Christ. And this man, Paul, was giving out the word of God. And it irritated people, that is some, because it's salt. And if it gets in a fresh wound, that is where the sin in the life Word of God, I tell you, is like salt. Then we saw him revealing something that I feel today is needed in the churches. And here I go again as a retired preacher trying to tell the church what it should do. But may I say that I had to listen to it for years, so maybe I ought to get even. At least I'm going to venture this and believe that that's exactly what Paul is saying here that the church should mirror the family of God down here on this earth. Now, I do not mean what I hear today over and over again. Our church is a family church. Well, I understand by that statement what they mean is this. Bring the whole family to church. And we'll send little Susie that's in the nursery. We'll put her over in a little bed. We've got one for her. And we'll send Junior off with a bunch of other little brats his age, and he'll be at his peer group. And then we take the teenager and put the teenagers together. And then Mom and Pop, they go off with the couples class, and Grandma and Grandpa go with the senior citizens. Now, they call that a family church. Paul would know nothing about that type of thing today. And very candidly, I'm not sure that he would approve of it. But what he means here is that the church should reveal in a community what a family should reveal. A husband, wife, married relationship, and the child in the home should reveal the threefold aspect of the love of Christ and of God for the world today. For instance, the husband has a responsibility, the wife and the child. We saw that in Ephesians. Now, here in First Thessalonians, Paul has already given to us the mother side of the church, the local church. And he was a mother to the church yonder in Thessalonica. The word here is a mother bird. And he didn't work eight hours a day. He was on the job all the time for him. Because he was a mother to them. And then he developed the father side. And you need the father side. The tragedy today of divorces, I think that probably there are a lot of couples that ought to separate because of the fact that they are fighting like cats and dogs, and they can get out of the ring if they separate and quit fighting. But very frankly, the tragedy is the child in the home. Because that child ought to experience the mother love, and it ought to experience the father love. And that father love is expressed in discipline. And Paul says he was a father to the church yonder in Thessalonica. Now, we need that today. Now, I know one or two very fine Bible teachers, and all they ever preach on is comfort. They're always comforting the saints. Now, actually, neither one of them have ever had very much experience as a pastor. And they just go around comforting the saints, and they all love it, because all of us want to be comforted. I'd be very frank with you. I would rather have somebody rub my back physically than most anything. My, what a joy it is to have somebody rub your back or rub your head You know, and it's nice to have the comfort. But there's another aspect, and that's discipline. And discipline is not only woefully lacking today in the home and also in the state, but it's lacking in the church today. The father's side. Now we come to the brother's side. Now the brother's side is also important. That's the child's side. And there is a responsibility, and here is where the brother aspect is. Verse 14, listen to him here. Now, this is the brother side of the apostles' ministry. For ye brethren, and that's brothers, for ye brothers became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Now, what is it that makes brothers today? There are two things that make brothers. We are all brothers, irrespective of color or anything, because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in that category. We are blood brothers if you please, because of the fact of sin. And that's put us all in the human family. That's a brotherhood of sinners. And since it is, it's not a loving brotherhood. You better watch your brother. That is the other human being, by the way. For ye brethren. Now, how are they becoming brothers and drawn together? He says, "...because ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen." Now, the Thessalonian church was largely a Gentile church. And the Gentiles, it was a Roman colony there in Thessalonica, they persecuted the early Christians. And they were causing them a great deal of difficulty at this time, although the great persecutions under the empress had not yet broken out. But they were suffering in Thessalonica. Now, Paul could say, well, you know, before you, the brethren over in Jerusalem, they suffered from their brothers, that is, racial brothers. And now this has drawn you two together. What is it drew them together? Suffering drew them together. And suffering is the cement that holds believers together. You know the church today's coming unglued. And the reason, I think is, is because it's like we're going to find later on in one of the prophets, Hosea, he says Ephraim waxed fat and kicked. That is, they entered a period of affluence and they became very critical. And today, the church in this country right now is in affluence. And I'll be very frank with you, I think persecution is around the corner today. I could give you quotations from certain leaders that are very remarkable. Let me just give you one. Mr. Melvin Laird, at the convention up in San Francisco, why he made this statement, and I don't know why he made it, but I took the clipping out of a magazine where he's reported to have said that he felt that Christians would have to suffer for their faith. Well, that would, to me, a very strange statement coming from him at a political convention. But that was the report that was given. Well, there are many others that are saying now, and we today pray for revival. I know any number of prayer groups that meet together and they pray for revival. Let me say this. I've never heard of one of them yet praying that they all might suffer or be persecuted, that revival might come. And very candidly, I do not think under the present state in this country we're going to have revival. Now, right now, there is a renewed interest in the word of God that is tremendous. And there's some reporting it as a revival. I don't call it that. But we feel our program came in on the wave of this renewed interest in the Word of God. And it's the reason people are listening to the Word of God. I don't call it revival. I tell you, when revival gets here, nobody's going to ask the question, is this revival? They're going to say, this is it. And we haven't yet arrived. But I do believe that if suffering came to the church, It would draw believers together, and we'd cut out all this nonsense of picky, picky, the other fella. He doesn't do it like I do. He's got a little peculiar doctrine. He feels like you should be baptized this way. My friend, today, are you a child of God? Then you're a brother of mine. I want you to know that. You may disagree with me, but you're my brother. You're my brother. Because we're in the family of God, and we should mirror that before the world. And when the church mirrors that before the world, then revival is going to come. I think that we are trying to take a detour and a shortcut to revival for praying for revival. Why don't we pray for the conditions that produce a revival? And you'll find out that it was man's extremity that brought revival at times in the past, the great Wesley movement came out of the dark day in England when they were on the verge of a revolution. We're not far from it either. And today we need to recognize that it'll take that sort of thing to produce a revival. Now, that's not going to make me popular with certain groups. But somebody needs to tell them, you see, that's what Paul says here. And I'm merely just parroting what he said. Now he goes on, verse fifteen of First Thessalonians two, who both kill the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, I consider this a remarkable passage of Scripture, and it reveals a great principle. God permits sin to run its full course. And the figure of speech that the prophets used was that the cup of iniquity must be filled up, and God's permitting it to be filled up. In other words, God won't check it, because if he did check it, Satan would say, see, you didn't give me a chance. You wouldn't permit me to go all the way. Now, God's going to let him go all the way. And I interpret the great tribulation as that, by the way. Now, will you notice verse 17 here that we have? Now you have the reward of a true witness of Christ. Listen to him. But we, brethren, here he goes again, this is brotherhood. This is real brotherhood, by the way. This is the real ecumenical movement. When you're in Christ, you see, we're all brothers in Christ. But I tell you, outside of Christ, we'll cut each other's throat. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoring the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Isn't that lovely of the apostle Paul? Paul has run out of Thessalonica, and he said, I hated to leave you, and I want to come to you again. And he did, by the way. Verse 18, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan, or the adversary, hindered us. Now, Paul has a spiritual discernment to see that it was Satan's strategy that kept him from going to Thessalonica. And Satan here means adversary. I believe that Satan would hinder this program of getting the word of God out. And we have seen several instances of it. We were on a radio station in which we were reaching an entire area. And things were going so nicely. And a godless man, bought that station, and he put all religious programs off. There were other good programs on that station, and he put them off. Why? The enemy, the adversary, he doesn't want the word of God given out. Now, listen to Paul, verse 19 now. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and is coming, for ye are our glory and joy. Now, Paul says that one of the greatest things that the coming of Christ to take his church out are going to be these people that he led to Christ. By the way, friends, is there anybody going to be in heaven that's going to come up to you and thank you for having part in giving out the word of God to them that got them saved? Have you given to missions? And there probably comes somebody way out yonder in a place and a person you never even heard of and going to say, I want to thank you for giving to missions. I want to thank you for being interested in getting the word of God out because it came to me because of that. And that, my friend, is going to be part of the reward." that we get in heaven. Oh, that you and I recognize that. It's one thing to believe that Jesus is going to take the church out of the world. It's another thing to have somebody to go along with you, that trust in Christ because of you. We leave off right there today, and we'll pick up there next time, friends, at the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, friends, the great, Theme of 1 Thessalonians is the rapture of the church. The great theme of 2 Thessalonians is the revelation of Christ. And that's his coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And we find Paul in Thessalonica, where he'd been less than a month, he taught these two great themes. And the thing that impresses me is the practicality of these doctrines. Now, today, all schools of eschatology, that is, of prophecy, have got this teaching way out in left field, where it becomes sort of a extraneous sort of thing, that this is something that it's nice to talk about and argue about, but it's not too meaningful. You can't get it geared into life, And it doesn't seem to walk in shoe leather down here. Paul is certainly showing that it does. And in chapter 3, the theme here is the coming of Christ is a purifying hope. Change your life. Affect your lifestyle if you hold to the rapture of the church. That is the imminent coming of Christ for his own. It'll affect your life, and it doesn't. You really don't hold it. It's just sort of a theory. It's a philosophy for you. But when it affects you. Now, that's the heart of this epistle. Beginning here with chapter 3 and going through the fourth chapter, verse 12. The very heart of this epistle is that the coming of Christ for his church is a purifying hope. Now, Paul Waited, do you remember, over in Corinth for a report to come from Timothy and from, apparently, Silas and Dr. Luke, others that were there. Now, he says here, as we open chapter 3, Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. Now, apparently, Paul was with some of the brethren in Athens. And what actually happened was that these men that he was waiting for were actually Timothy and Silas. And I think others in the party were probably with Paul. And he says, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. So he apparently sent all of them back and that's when Paul spent his time alone there. Now, the wherefore is a rather important word that opens this chapter. Do you remember he talked about, in the last one, about the family relationship that exists in the church? He'd been a mother to the church. He'd been a father. And he was a brother. And as a brother, he loved them, you see. He led them to the Lord. And he says, as he closed the last chapter, he says, "...for ye are our glory and joy." When? At the coming of Christ, if you please. And that word coming is parousia. Now, I know that Paul used these terms for the coming of Christ interchangeably. But there are times when Paul puts a real emphasis. And parousia means here the parousia appearance of Christ, and that was naturally to believers. And here, that would be the time that believers would be rewarded. And this wherefore ties it back into the last chapter. It was because of his affection for them and his frustration in attempting to come to them, but Satan had hindered him, you see. And Paul had to leave Thessalonica so quickly that there were many unfinished teachings and doctrines that he had not been able to develop fully. And we're going to come to one of those a little later. And he not only longs to return, but he wondered about the future of the believers there. And Paul longed to comfort them. In other words... He demonstrates the thing he mentioned at the beginning, a labor of love. Now, friends, here is an example of love in action. Love is not affection or just a nice, comfortable, warm feeling around your heart. Love seeks the welfare of another. That's the way you express your love for anyone. You seek their welfare. And you'd actually jeopardize your own life for them if you love them, you see. So Paul says here in verse 2 of First Thessalonians 3, And I sent Timotheus, our brother. Here we are still talking about the brother. And a minister. He's a minister, you see. And the word minister here is diakonos. We get our word deacon from it. It means servant, and he's a minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Now, the gospel of Christ is the sphere of servants. That is, Paul was not just a do-gooder, and sometimes we're criticized because our main objective is to get out the Word of God, and we make that primary And the fundamentalists are criticized that we do not emphasize the social aspect of the gospel. Well, there's never been any great social movement that was not anchored in the preaching of the gospel. The child labor laws came out of the great Wesley meetings, and the labor movement owes a great deal to John Wesley, although they don't recognize it because They're so far from that. But actually, that is the background of every great movement. The hospitals came out of the preaching of the Word of God. And if I do what I'm supposed to do, then these other things actually are going to take care of themselves. And after all, isn't all of this welfare program, hasn't it become one of the most corrupt things that probably has ever taken place in our government. I think the corruption from what we read and what we hear must be tremendous today. And why? Because it's not anchored in the gospel of Christ. You see, that's the sphere of service. And I've never really seen a do-gooder who did good. (laughs) The liberals today, what are they doing? (laughs) What good are they doing? They have done nothing in the world but encouraged immorality and license. They haven't lifted up mankind. They haven't taken these kids that are in drugs. Well, I was in Portland, Oregon, when there was a scandal broke out, that that which the liberal churches was running was the place to go get the pill. That's where the girls went, and that's where you could get drugs, if you please. May I say to you, if we give out the gospel of Christ, that's our sphere of service. And Paul says that Timothy was a servant, and this was the sphere of his service. And believe me, friends, when that is given out, there'll be a lot of doing good that'll take place. And the do-gooders, the only criticism I've ever had of them is, they just don't do good. If they do good... It'd be wonderful if they were helping folk today, lifting them up. But I just don't discover that. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong direction. I don't know. Now, will you notice here, he goes on to say, may he establish you and comfort you concerning your faith. Now, to establish them is a very wonderful word. It was used back in the book of Exodus when Moses, you remember, went to the mountain, held up his hands in prayer, and when he did, the children of Israel were given a victory, and there's a great spiritual lesson there. And Exodus 17, verse 12, let me read that. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone, put it under him, he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur, "...stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun." And it says that they stayed up the hands of Moses. Now, that's the same word here, that he sent Timothy over to stay up, to hold them up, to establish them, you see. And today people need to be established in the faith. And the word comfort here actually means to encourage. He has sent him over there now to hold them up, to establish them, and then to comfort them or to encourage them in the faith. Now, in verse 3, I read that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are pointed thereunto. Now, here is a very wonderful statement, and it's hard to swallow for any of us for that matter. He says here, and let me just break it apart and look at it, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. The word "moved" means disturbed, and the word for afflictions here are the pressures, the tensions. And then he says something here that is absolutely amazing. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Now, appointed means that you and I are to go through storms down here. But they're temporary, and we can't escape them. It's made very clear to us in the Word of God that you and I are to have trouble down here, and Paul wants the Thessalonians to stand for the Lord in the midst of afflictions. Now, friends, if you're a believer, you're not going to escape trouble. To accept Christ doesn't mean to take out an insurance policy that you will never suffer loss. The fact of the matter is, actually, the minute you become a child of God, that means you're going to start having trouble. Even if you haven't had it before, you're going to have it when you become a child of God. Now, that is exactly what the Lord Jesus taught. Over in John sixteen thirty three, will you listen to this? He says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. And that's not the great tribulation. That's the little tribulation. That is the trouble that all of us are going to have. And he says there's no way around it. In the world ye shall have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Here we go again. Be of good cheer in trouble? Yes. My friend, many of God's children are learning and knowing what trouble is. Now, the amazing thing is he has promised to lead us through the trouble. The way that it has been expressed as this. He didn't say that we would miss the storm. Fact of the matter is, he said we would go through the storm, all the storms of life. The thing he did say very definitely and dogmatically, he said we were going to make the harbor because any little boat that he's on board isn't going to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee it's going to the other side, and we're in the process of going to the other side. Now Paul reinforced that in Second Timothy the third chapter verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There are no ifs ands, buts about it. Now, may I say this to you? as a child of God, Is the sky clear for you? There's no cloud. There's not a ripple on the sea of life for you today. Everything is smooth and everything is just nice for you. May I say, if it is like that, then you might question your salvation. But if you are experiencing trouble down here and the pressures and tensions of life are on you, I have news for you. That's one of the signs that you're God's child. I noticed that God's children suffer a great deal. And one of the most wonderful things is it's going to be temporary. You're going to come through it. I remember years ago of hearing about a church in Memphis, Tennessee, where the pastor, a black pastor, and he asked for verses of Scripture. And one man got up. And he says, it came to pass. And he sat down. Everybody looked puzzled. And the pastor said to him, well, brother, how in the world can that statement, it came to pass, be your favorite verse? Well, he says, when I get in trouble and it comes to me, I turn to where it says it came to pass. And I know it came to pass. It didn't come to stay. And I thank God that I'm going to get out of the storm and get rid of my trouble. What a wonderful thing. He may have misapplied that verse, but his theology is absolutely accurate, and it's according to what Paul is saying here. Now, let me continue to read on here. Verse 4, he says that, "...for verily, when we were with you, we told you before..." that we should suffer tribulation. And this is the same word, afflictions. As I've said before, the church will not go through the great tribulation. It'll go through the little tribulation. We're all going to have a little trouble down here, and it's for a purpose. Why? Even as it came to pass, and ye know for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now, the tempter here is none other than Satan, as we saw back in verse 18 of the second chapter. He says, but Satan hindered us. Paul says, he's given me a bad time, and I know he may be giving you a bad time over there. In other words, afflictions test the genuineness of the coin of belief. Someone has said that trouble... Is the asset that tests the genuineness of a coin of belief. You know, there are a lot of counterfeits, and there are a lot of counterfeit Christians. And the thing that will really reveal the genuineness of your faith is that whether you can endure trouble or not. Afflictions reveal a genuine believer. And this is the occasion of his rejoicing. Now he says, "...but now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and love, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you." You know... Friends, that's quite wonderful that Paul got word from them, and the word was that it was a good report, and they were enduring trouble. And Paul now says to them, he's having trouble. Therefore, brethren, this is verse 7 now, First Thessalonians 3, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith, for now we live, if we stand fast in the Lord, we live here means that as believers, we enjoy life. <laughs> and if here is sense, I think that we should know, since ye stand fast in the Lord, and even in trouble, you can enjoy it. that 's not easy to do, my friend. but Peter made that statement over in first Peter fourth chapter. Verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Friend, you can't lose being a Christian, even if you have trouble. It's going to work out. For you, good, you can always be sure of that. My, how wonderful this is. Now he says here in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? Joy is associated with life, and sorrow is associated with death. Sorrow increases a capacity of the heart, though, for joy. And my, that's what Paul is talking about here. I want you to rejoice. Being a Christian is a wonderful thing. Now, Paul says here, look here, "...night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith." In other words, his labor in Thessalonica was very rudely interrupted. He's run out of town And Paul says, I would like to come and continue my teaching ministry. And friends, Paul wanted to teach the Word of God. He wanted to get the Word of God out. And that, to me, is the most comforting thought that I have in my own heart. I want to get the Word of God out, and I feel kinship with this brother here. The important thing, friends, is to get the Word of God out. It's not to keep the through the Bible radio on the air. It's to get the Word of God out. That's the important thing. And if I quit giving it out, I hope the Lord will take me off there. Verse 11, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Oh, how Paul prayed, to come unto them. Now he says, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. "...to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints." What a wonderful thing this is here. You see, love is not affection, it seeks the welfare of another here. And that end was, love was not an end in itself, that they might develop a character of holiness and here's a statement I've given you before. If you were tried in court for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because we're going to appear before him, and he's going to judge our works. Let me mention something else. It may terrify you, but let's mention it. He's also going to judge our character as believers. Now, this is to see whether we receive a reward or not. My Christian friend, what kind of life are you living today? That's important. Verse 13 again. To the end, he, that is the Lord Jesus, may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, this would seem to indicate, and I think most schools agree, that the saints are going to come with Christ when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. If you disagree with that, well, I'm not going into that area at all. But I think most would agree with that. But this would seem to indicate that he doesn't reward them until that time that he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. And many of us believe that we come before the judgment seat of Christ before that. That is, that when he takes the church out of the world, the world enters the great tribulation period, and then he comes at the end of the great tribulation period. And so the question naturally arises here, when is he going to present us unblameable in holiness before God? Here, is it when he takes the church out, or will it be at the time he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom? And it depends on this expression here, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, this word coming is a very interesting word. It is translated sometimes... By one Greek word, sometimes by a second, sometimes by a third. One of the words that's used is epiphany. Epiphania is the Greek word. We get our word epiphany from it. Actually, the first coming of Christ was an epiphany. We are told the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. There's the word right there. When he came the first time... It was a shining through. That's actually what the word means. A breaking through and a shining through of the Lord. And He came in person 1900 years ago as a little baby, Bethlehem. And that was an epiphany. His presence, you see, as He came into the world. And by the way, it's a great word. And it can be used of either the coming of Christ the first time or can be used for his coming to take the church out of the world, or to establish his kingdom. Because actually, all three will be a breaking through, a shining through, or the presence of the Lord Jesus. Then there's a second word that's used, Apocalypsis. Well, that's the word that's used in the book of Revelation. That's the name of the book, Revelation. And the word in the Greek is apokalupsis. It means the unveiling. And therefore, when he came 1900 years ago, you couldn't quite call that an unveiling because his glory was veiled in human flesh. And just as in the tabernacle of old, the Shekinah glory was back in the Holy of Holies and only the high priests went there. And when the Lord Jesus was here before, his glory did not show forth. It was in human flesh. Now, when he comes again, it will shine forth. And so that word is used for his second coming. Now, the third word that's used, and that's the word that's used here, is parousia. And that really means just the presence. It's a word that's made up of the Verb to be, that is, usia and para, means along, it means to be present. In fact, that's the best word for to be present. Now, it's commonly translated, of course, as the coming of Christ, as it is translated here, and it means presence. Presence. And actually, that's about all that it does mean. And you have it, and I think probably I ought to turn to another reference, over in the second chapter of Philippians, 12th verse, we're told, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And there is the word there, the presence. That is, Paul was present. Now, what does this word coming a presence mean here. Well, when someone is coming, we always speak of it as his presence. For instance, I was introduced and the pastor that introduced me says we're thankful for the coming of doctor McGee. Well, friends, I wasn't coming at that time, I was sitting down on the platform. But That's the way we use it. He was happy that I had come and I had driven down from Los Angeles, you see. Now, we are going to be present with the Lord Jesus at the very moment that we caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, he'll take us home to glory, to the place that he's prepared for us. And this word coming here, doesn't necessarily refer specifically to the coming of Christ with his saints to the earth, but rather the coming to heaven when they'll be in the presence of the Father. And I think that we have that thought back in the second chapter that we had at verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus?' at his coming, literally, before our Lord Jesus in his presence. You see here that it has that particular meaning, and it means that we will be in his presence at that particular time, and it does not refer specifically to his coming. He's already taken his church out of the world, and we are in his presence. I think that that, should be made clear because there are some that have made a great deal of this here, not recognizing the meaning of this particular word that is used here.